Let's say a word of prayer, and then we're going to dig into the Word for just a few minutes, okay? So we can let any of those that are, have plans for lunch in very crowded restaurants, you can get there on time. So Lord, thank you for this day. Again, we thank you for our mothers. And we give you praise for them, Lord. And I pray that, Lord, as we look into your word, that, that Father, that you will speak to us. And may your word become just alive in us as we read it and as we discuss it. May you be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Today we're going to be looking at the second of two questions that the uh, religious leaders tried to use to trap Jesus. Okay? Two weeks ago, we saw this, that the Pharisees and the Herodians, remember the Pharisees are very conservative, as we would maybe call them, okay, um, priests, and the Herodians, who were the political leaders, a political party of Herod, okay, had attempted to discredit Jesus by putting him either against the government or the people. But Jesus rerouted the trap and pointed them back to their relationship with God, as he always does. In fact, when they said, well, what, what should we do, pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus said, give unto Caesar or render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. He says, and to God what is God's. And so he rerouted it and brought them home in that way. Now today we're going to look at this. The Lord is confronted and challenged for a second time in this chapter. Again, it was a different group who tries to out-argue and discredit him. His attackers today are the Sadducees. The religious, I'm going to say this, this is true. I'm not, this is not trying to put it into today's context, but you're going to see how very applicable it is to our world today and to the church today. The Sadducees are the religious, political, progressives, or we call them liberals, of the day. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We'll start in verse 18. Some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, it's Mark 12, 18, <clears throat> Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up the children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third, likewise. And all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven have married her. I want to ask them if this is a comedy act. If you really think about it, I mean, it's like, wow. Let's go on says, which wife will she be? Jesus said to them, is this, is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read the book of Moses? In the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, meaning Moses, saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are greatly mistaken. And that's God calling. Okay, now, here's the attackers. Let's, you're going to hang in there with me as we try to set this, uh, this argument up in some ways. We're going to tell you who the Sadducees are. Who are they? This is the only place in Mark where the Sadducees are ever mentioned. The Sadducees came from the families of the highest standing. They, they were very wealthy, very high standing. They were wealthy, worldly, um, though in a few in number compared with the Pharisees, they were also ill-mannered, arrogant, and conceited. Nice people. Now, where did I get that from? Let me show you. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote about him. He said this, The Sadducees are, even among themselves, rather boorish in their behavior and in their relations with their peers are as rude as aliens. Now, we're not talking about aliens like from other planets. Okay, we're talking about people who are not Jewish, people who came, you know, to uh, Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting is that the word boorish there is an old type English word, and it means this, of a bore. You're going, what do you mean? They're boring? No. If you've ever been hunting for boar, boars are mean. Boars will charge you. Boars will take their tusks and try to tear you apart. That's what Josephus was talking about. They were rude, and they were very insensitive people. Politically, the Sadducees' highest agenda was cooperation with Rome. Since, now listen to this, since they believed that life in this world is all there is, the Sadducees pursued power, wealth, position, and control. Most of the Sadducees were priests and were very wealthy. They considered themselves the religious aristocrats of Judaism and tended to look down on everybody else. Now this is the guy that came to Jesus and stood before him and goes, I've got a question for you. This is the kind of guy. He probably, you know, when a Sadducee pushed through the crowd and went, it's my turn. Get it. I got, listen to me. I got something I want to tell you. I got something I want to ask you. If there's a resurrection... There's this guy, and he starts telling the story, probably very rude and arrogant to Jesus. Now, this is what they believed. They recognized only one thing, and that was the law of Moses, meaning what? The Torah, the first five books. It was their only religious authority. So if a doctrine could not be defended from the first five books of the Old Testament, they would not even think about it or accept it. They did not believe in the existence of the soul, life after death, resurrection, final judgment, angels or demons. They had no faith. I mean, they just wiped out everything. Their main distinction above all others is this, is that they rejected the supernatural apart from God himself, meaning this. They rejected anything supernatural. The only thing that was supernatural is God. His existence was supernatural. Other than that, nothing happened. This world is all that they thought that they had. How would you like to go to a church like that? Their trap was this. Let's turn to it. Verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now let me tell you something real quick. This, they brought this hypothetical question to Jesus. Jesus. 
but it was based on Deuteronomy 25, verses 7 through 10. It was called the Leverite marriage, meaning this. If a man's, a man's, if a man's married brother died, he must marry the widow. But listen to this carefully, because this is all setting up where we're going to go. This was an ancient custom which existed actually long before the law ever did, before God ever gave the law, okay? His purpose was to keep a family from dying out and to keep family wealth intact in the family. It seemed a perfect argument because they were going to trap him. But Jesus turned it all around. Look at verse 24. Now, we're not going to read through all the stuff about the second and third and seventh husband and all that. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? Now, catch this real quick. The Sadducees were very arrogant about their knowledge of the five, first five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch, as we would call it, the books of Moses. Very arrogant about it. They thought that they knew it backwards and forwards. Just like the Pharisees thought they knew the whole, all the writings that way. And it's really interesting, but even though they thought they knew it so well, they picked it apart and only believed what they wanted to believe. And they thought they could hold an argument or in any way with anybody. They were that arrogant from the little bit that we know about the Sadducees. Now, Jesus looks at him and says, is this not the reason you are mistaken? The word mistaken means this. It translates a form of the verb planeo, which means to wander or to go astray. So was Jesus saying you're making a mistake? Or was he looking at him and going, you have wandered from the truth? This is the reason you've wandered from the truth. What's the reason? What they just said. They don't know the law. Look at this. Due to their ignorance of the scripture, the Sadducees had wandered from the truth into error. The grammatical structure of the phrase suggests that they were not only, now listen to this, negatively ignorant, but also confidently unwilling. They were negatively Ignorant, but confident and unwilling. They had neither the ability nor the willingness to understand the scriptures. It wasn't important to them, even though they thought they knew them. Now listen to that. Even though they thought they knew the scriptures, the scriptures themselves, the word of God, was not important to them. Hang on with me. Jesus' response to them when he says, is this not the, you know, the, the, the reason you are mistaken? Is a slap in the face. Why? Because they thought they knew the scriptures. And, but this was the insult of insults. Even though Jesus wasn't trying to insult them. But to them it was considered the insult of insults. You are saying that we don't know we've wandered from the scriptures? How would you like somebody to say that to you? Most of us go, I would welcome that, Yes. Here's the answer. It's real simple. Look at verse 25. For when they, are, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, 
but are like the angels in heaven. But back up. Look at verse 24 again. Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? Why would they not understand the power of God? Because one, they don't understand the scriptures, and two, they don't believe in the supernatural in any way. So he, he hits them right where they believe. And then he gives them a very simple answer. Answer. Here's the whole, if you could sum it up, here's the whole answer. For when they arise from the dead, they're neither married nor they are given to marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now those of us that have good marriages and we love our spouse, we don't like this verse. Because how can you think of being without this, the man or the woman that you've married, a husband or wife, for all eternity? I'm going to explain that in just a moment, but like, I can't, I can't imagine being without Denise. And I told her I'd love her forever, her, throughout all eternity. Well, is that scripturally correct? Yeah. Because we're going to have the love of God, and it's going to be greater than anything we've imagined. But when I said it to her, I was talking about just my love for her. There's no marriage in heaven. When people rise from the dead, they neither marry nor give it in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven, is what he said. The Sadducees thought that they were smart, but Jesus revealed their ignorance because he said this, resurrection is not the restoration, is not the restoration of life as we know it. It is the entrance into a life that is different. And if you want to read, we don't have time today, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just read that passage. Read that whole section. It talks about the resurrection, what, what it's going to be like in very simple terms. But understand this, resurrection, Resurrection is not the restoration of life as we know it. It is the entrance into a new life that is different. I'll wait. In the eternal state, I know I'm reading a lot because I want to lay this out. Where our new bodies are perfect and there is no death, there will be no need for marriage. Why? Because there's no procreation in heaven. And the continuance of our race, the human race, is not not needed. It's not going to be in heaven. It's not going to be like that. What is it going to be like? Like other human relationships, marriage is for this present life only. Resurrection represents complete transformation. Resurrected men and women will live like the angels, not be angels, but like the angels in a relationship that replaces marriage. What does that mean? It means this. The relationship that we will have with each other is based on the glory and holiness of God. We will be so different that we won't need marriage anymore. The love and the acceptance and the perf perfectiveness, and that's not even a word. I just made it up. She's going, that's not a word, Ron. That's my truth, okay? I'm kidding, <laughs> okay? The, the perfect position we will be in, the completeness that we will have, we will not need marriage. Marriage will be secondary because our relationship with God now is so right 
and is so perfect and is so holy and is filled with the very presence and love of God, we will experience a love that is higher than anything we can imagine. And we can't imagine that. Now, I can't imagine anybody loving me more than my wife. But it will be that way. You all with me? Okay. Look at verse 26. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Jesus refutes their claim that the Pentateuch did not teach the resurrection exposing the, their ignorance of the scriptures. They thought they knew it. And when Jesus brought this up, he brought the, up the absolute argument that destroyed their hypothetical situation. He says the Sadducees who prided themselves on their knowledge of the writings of Moses, he says this, the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, if God speaks of the deceased patriarchs in the present tense, then those patriarchs are alive to him in the present moment and will arise when, the, when he returns. Our God does not receive worship from people who no longer exist. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. What does that say to us? In this boring presentation, what does that say to us? That God is alive. And everyone that has gone before us is alive. But what does it say to us? Is that life is eternal. This is just a fleshly shell. And when it's born again, it's the very temple of the Holy Spirit, it says in 1 Corinthians 6. But what does that say? What is it in, in, in our so-called faith today? Why are we not excited about that? Because of this. We don't really believe it. We're wrapped up in an earthly world so much so that we're, no, we're, we're not heavenly minded. You know, we used to say this all the time. I learned it back when I got saved. That if you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Which is wrong. It's scripturally wrong. Set your mind on things above, Colossians. Not on earthly things. We are to be thinking about heaven, so much so that the la one of the last passages of the Bible that we carry is what? The Spirit and the bride say, come. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. It's the bride waiting here saying, come, Lord Jesus, come and take us home. We're waiting for you. Our eyes are lifted up. But we don't think that way because we get wrapped up in the things of the world. You're saying, well, it's easy for you to say you're a preacher. You're always in the word of God. And always... Come and hang out with me for a week. If that's what you think, because it's not true. It's as hard for me as anybody else. Sometimes harder because I'm always studying it. And sometimes it's harder because i got to deal with Christians. Or can't, let's call them church people. That's what the world calls us, church people. Why do we not believe it? 
because of this. We don't know the scriptures. Look at verse 27. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of but of the living, or the God of the living. You're greatly mistaken. When God's word is not living and active in one's life, wandering is not far from one's heart. Remember the word mistaken? Remember what we saw? What does it mean? It means to wander. He looked at these men that supposedly knew the word of God. They gave their life into studying the five books of Moses. And what did he say to them? You have greatly wandered from the truth. You know it, meaning you've studied it, but you've wandered from this. Do you know that most believers, and I'm going to say it, most believers, they have a Bible and they pick it up on Sunday if they go to church, and that's about it. Do you know the Word of God is the most neglected thing in a believer's life? If you could sit in the counseling, not here, nobody here, over the years that I've sat, sat with, and when I ask them this question, are you in the Word of God? No, nah, not that much. I say, explain not that much. Well, not a lot. Explain not a lot. Then they, by this time, they're getting irritated with me. I say, how much did you read it today? I didn't. What did you read yesterday? Nothing. What did you read the day before? Nothing. When was the last time you had your Bible in your hand? Well, it's on my phone. When was the last time you opened your phone app up and read the scriptures? Crickets. Crickets. And then we wonder why our walk with God is not the way it should be. Because when God's word is not living and active in one's life, wandering is not far from one's heart. Because we're prone to wander. The sinful nature will take us and move us away. It will take us from the truth. It will move us into something different. That's what's happening in the church. That's why this progressive Christianity that is happening is happening. Because they don't know the word of God. They haven't studied it. They aren't looking at it. They're not looking at the Greek words. They're not looking at the context. Then we have, what he, I'm going to tell you a big fancy word, eisegesis. And it's not a curse word. You know what that means? It means to take eisegesis. There's exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis means that you've taken it, you've looked at the context of the word, you're using the word to, to interpret the word of God, you're looking at the, you know, the, the, the writer behind, you're looking at everything you possibly can within the word of God. It's the word interpreting the word. Eisegesis is taking a passage like, uh, well, let's look at verse 24 real quick. Jesus said, is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? Well, you know what Jesus was really saying there? This is the way I see it. When someone says this is the way I see it, you know you're getting ready to be eisegesis because it's, I'm going to make that passage fit what I want it to say. I'm going to make that passage look and sound the way I want it to sound. And if I have to leave something out, then that's okay. Because God knows and he understands. Because this is my truth. Isn't that the phrase today? 
This is my truth. This is how I believe. When you hear that, they've taken that passage, passage or passages, and they've eisegesis. That makes sense? Good. I offended the whole room. Let's keep going. Look at this next point. When God's word is not living and active in one's life, the daily presence and power of God is not recognized. You know what the word, look, look at verse 24 again. Jesus said, is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. You know what the word understand means? It's interesting. It means to see. But the tenses that they use for this word derive from the meaning of Ido, one of which has exclusively the meaning of this, to see, and the other has the meaning to know. So either way, to see and to know is what it means. So when Jesus looked at him, he said, you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. He's saying you don't see it and you don't know it. He called him out. But see, we can't do that kind of stuff anymore, nor should we be rude. But the very rudest religious group that existed during that time, Jesus looked at him and called him out and said, you don't know this and you don't see it. You don't see and know the power of God or the scriptures. This is not part of you. You have wandered from these things. And this is happening in the church. This small crowd this morning, listen to me. Don't let your heart wander. Because by the time you recognize it, it could be too late. And you've wasted, wasted time. Because if we take the word of God and we twist it any which way we want to, there's a good chance we don't even know what salvation is and there's a better chance that we're not born again. When the God's word is not living and active in our life, the de- no, back it up, back it up, sweetie, back it up. Back it up, yeah, there we go. It's not active in one's life. The daily presence, did you catch that? The daily presence and power of God is not recognized. You ever got to a point where you're going, God, I just don't feel you anymore. Where are you in this? You ever said that? Don't answer, because every one of us has said that. If we know the word of God, if we know the word of God, we would never ask that question. You're going, come on, cut some slack, we're human. That's no excuse. If we know the word of God, God said, I will never leave you. Or, so if he said, I will never leave you or forsake you, why do we ask him, God, where are you? It's like standing there and going, Marissa, where are you? Marissa, where are you? I can't see you. I don't know you're here. And that's what she would do to me right there. She goes, I don't want to be here. (laughs) But it's standing in front of God going, God, where are you? And he says, I wrote to you. I told you I would never leave you or forsake you. But Lord, where are you? I'm right here. Lord, I don't see you or know you. Do you also say, lo, I will be with you always until the end of the age? 
And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We can keep going on this. We have all this affirmation that God's given us, but we don't know the word well enough to understand it and to know the very power of God. We think the power of God is something that happens on a Sunday morning when we go, ooh, I got goosebumps, God's here. No, that means the air conditioner just blew on your neck. Oh, Jesus bumps, Jesus bumps. That doesn't say that God's presence is here. That means you're cold and the air conditioner's on a really cold setting. But at the same time, if we know the presence of God, how do we know it? Because we know the word of God. When we know the word of God, we know the presence of God. When we know the presence of God, we know the word of God at the same time. Why? We know the presence of God because we knew the word. You're going, you're really confusing me. You keep saying it back and forth. Yes, because it happens that way. Get in the word of God and you're going to start experiencing the presence of God. I promise you. I promise you. But we go on feelings and we go instead of facts. And there's nothing wrong with feelings. I like feelings. Not the song, but I like feelings. Only old people know that. Catch that one. Don't sing it. God gave us those feelings. There's nothing wrong with them. But feelings will lead you astray if the feelings are not regulated by the word of God. Lastly, when God's word is not living and active in one's life, one is not truly walking with God. Yes, I said that. What does Psalm 119.105 say? Anybody know? You're going, no. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? So if God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Now listen to this. If God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and we're following his word, then we're walking with God, are we not? If we're not walk, following his word, how can you say you're walking with God? If his word is not that active in your life, now I'm not saying you gotta spend hours and hours a day in Bible study. That's, that's great. If you can do that, wonderful, do it. You will not regret it. But if there's not some time during the day where you're spending some time in the word of God, whether it's 10 minutes, 20 minutes, or 30 minutes, each day, every day, getting into the word just for a moment, and if it's all you can do is read it, then read it. Because what that does is that gets into your spirit. And when those tough times come, I mean, Ruth Bell Graham said this, Billy Graham's wife, that if you know the word of God, you will always have hope in any situation you go in. That's a wild paraphrase, but that's pretty much what she said. And her daughter, Angram, is the same thing. It's not about the feelings, it's about the Word of God. But when we get into the Word of God, we can sense, and there'll be times when we'll know that God is speaking to us, and we can feel it, and we take it, and we run with it. And when we get into the tough times and the valleys and the, the, the hard times, His Word will come back to us in those times and give us support, and we have something to stand on. It also says in Psalm 119, verse 11, and I encourage you, go home today after you eat dinner with mom, and before you go to bed, take out your Bible and read Psalm 119. It's a long psalm, but you'll be, it'll be worth it. 
In verse 11 of 119, it says this, I will hide or treasure your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You want to see victory over sin? Get in the word of God. Because first you'll be convicted, but then you'll see the hope. And I can tell this, I want to say this to young people, those of you who are here, don't neglect the word of God in your young age. Get it in your spirit, because when you get older, you're really going to need it. You're really going to need it. Let's end with verse 24 real quick. Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? Why did Jesus say that? Because they didn't understand the scriptures. Very religious people, but they didn't know the scripture. You know, when I got saved... Was in, I told you, in that little Baptist church down in Miami, Florida, right on the main, on the main highways, crossroads. It was called Flagami Baptist Church. And Flagami, you go, what kind of word is that? It is a real word. It's a merging of Flagler Street and Tamiami Boulevard into one. They called it Flagami. But you know, when I got saved, I couldn't understand this. Because God changed my life so radically that I got into the Word of God. I just started reading it. I didn't understand it, but I just started reading it and reading it and reading it. And my Bible was just precious to me. And I got when I got me a little New Testament, and I carried it in my back pocket for years. And at any t- moment I had, I would take it out and read it. But I didn't understand this. I would go to church and I would see, this is back when the cars had those things, Bibles up in the back window, because that's where the person threw it after they got out of church, and it stayed there till next Sunday. And the son would take it and just do this. And they would get it out. I saw, I saw people get it out, and they're going. They would come into church, and the little corners like this. And I, I didn't understand that. That wasn't being like judgmental. I was like, wait a minute. These are people that I knew that were just, they've been Christians probably since they were born, which is not true. You can't do that. But, and they didn't treasure the word of God. Why? Only they know, and God knows. But by the scripture, you can say there's probably a good chance they're not born again. Born again means that I'm born brand new. And that now the very presence and power of God lives in me. Because why do I say that? What does Romans 1.16 say? And we, we really are ending on this. 1.16, it says what? Anybody know? Come on, Rich. Help me out. Romans 1.16. Come on. All right, turn to it. Let's go. Romans 1.16. Aha, there you go. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, right? Now, wait a minute. They didn't understand what? The scriptures or the power of God. So, wait a minute. The gospel and the power of God. 
They're the one and the same. You want to know the power of God? It's when somebody gets saved. Somebody is born again. If it's not the power of God, then there's no change. That means if we are born again, our life changes. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean that we gotta, we, we're doing everything right from now. No. It means this. It means that God changed your life so much that you're falling in love with God every day. You want to be so close to him, and you know that he gave us this, this wonderful love letter to do what? To teach us, to tell us. You want to know who God is? Get in the word of God. You want to know who Jesus Christ is? Get in the word of God. You want to know what born again is? Get in the word of God. You want to know what being sanctified is? Get in the word of God. You want to know how to walk holy? Get in the word of God. You want to know how to overcome sin? Get in the word of God. Why do we have this? Because it changes our life when we put it inside. I will hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's something the Sadducees never did because they were the progressive, liberal, religious leaders of their time. They thought they knew the word of God, but they didn't. And because they didn't know the word of God, they didn't know the power of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. All. Do you believe? No, it's not a Mother's Day sermon. But I'll tell you one thing. I thank God for the moms that raised their kids on Christ, whether the kids followed or not. They raised their children on Jesus Christ and the Word of God. That's a mom. And I thank God for all moms, but the ones who raised them on Jesus are precious. Where do you stand with God today? Do you know the power of God? Do you know the scriptures? Let's pray.